0: This ad-free podcast is part of your Slate Plus membership.
1: I used to feel like there was a perfect song for every scene. And I would worry that, like, if I didn't find it, somebody else would. And so I had to kind of relax and just know that, like, you only know what you know. If you haven't heard it yet, buddy, it's okay.
0: Welcome back to Working. I'm your host, June Thomas. And I'm your other host, Isaac Butler. Isaac, as always, it's fabulous to share a Zoom room with you. Tell me, whose voices did we hear at the top of the show?
2: June is always good to record with you, and I'm sure you really enjoyed uh, watching me yawn. In our Zoom call two seconds ago. But anyway, the uh, voices we heard this week are Bruce Gilbert and Lauren Mikas.
0: And what do they do?
2: They are music supervisors, uh, most recently of two wonderful projects, Only Murders in the Building and Everything, Everywhere, All at Once. Good grief. I know, right?
0: They're clearly at the top of their game then, because talk about two projects that have been universally acclaimed. And there are also two projects where there's a ton of music to deal with. Like in Only Murders, the three lead characters have musical associations immediately. And one of them is dating a classical musician on top of it. Yep. And in everything everywhere, there are multiple universes, each with a different sound.
2: Both of those projects use music in really clever ways and in complicated ways, frankly. And as you'll hear, those two processes are really different. Only Murders in the Building was, I think, quite a bit more of a free-for-all in terms of how it conceptually came together. Whereas with Everything Everywhere All at Once, which is written and directed by Daniels, which is the name used by the creative partnership of Daniel Kwan and Daniel Scheinert, uh, they had a lot of clarity from the get-go about how they wanted music to work in the
0: film. Got it. Well, I am super excited to hear this interview, but first, I believe that you have an extra segment for Slate Plus members. What will they hear?
2: Yeah, we do a deeper dive into only murders in the building as an attempt to try to answer the most unanswerable question of all. What does New York City
0: sound like? That sounds amazing, and nobody would want to miss that. Fortunately, no one has to. As a member of Slate Plus, you'll get no ads on any of our podcasts. You'll get unlimited reading on the Slate.com website. And you'll also get member exclusive segments from us and other shows like Culture Gabfest and The Waves. And then some shows like Slow Burn and Big Mood, Little Mood give you entire extra episodes. To learn more about becoming a Slate Plus member, go to Slate.com slash working Now, let's hear Isaac's conversation with Bruce Gilbert and Lauren Micus.
2: Bruce, Lauren, thank you so much for joining me this week on Working to talk about your process.
3: Thank you. Nice to be here.
2: Thanks
1: for having us.
2: So, we've had one music supervisor guest before. This is the only second time we've featured music supervisors on the show. So I think we should probably just start on a very basic practical level, which is what is the job of a music supervisor? What, what do you do?
1: The basics are, we just, we oversee all, all the musical aspects of a production TV or film
2: mm-hmm.
1: that entails, you know, selecting songs on the creative end, putting soundtracks together, the, the, Mountain of paperwork that follows uh, in terms of licensing and getting approval and all that fun stuff. And then in a lot of cases, you know, identifying a composer for a project, working with them, trying to get the direction just right so we can achieve the uh, the musical goals of, of the show.
2: And how did you become music supervisors?
3: Um, I got lucky and did an internship on the Tree of Life in Austin for yeah. that Terrence Malick film. And a producer... First, I started in the art department and a producer on the show knew I was in bands and interested in music supervision. And he was like, why don't you just learn how to clear things on Tree of Life, which included hundreds of classical pieces. And so I kind of got the, the boring side of the job down first where you mm-hmm. have to do all the research. And I mean, some of it's interesting, like, um, and finding the right recordings that you can use and really learned like the nuts and bolts of the clearance process. Mm. So I came in in kind of a weird way but because there's no one way into this job. So I right. guess all the ways into this job are weird, but and, right,
2: the previous person yeah. I interviewed started as like a nighttime DJ.
3: Right, right. Right.
2: Yeah. And so you were a musician.
3: Yeah. Yeah. What instruments I, do you play? Um, I play guitar and some piano and sing, and I studied film in college too. So those are always my two interests.
2: And what about you, Bruce?
1: Almost the opposite. I found my way into a job at a, motion picture advertising agency, like a trailer house, as we call it now. And I was just, you know, the the star job there was an editing job. And I had been told that there was somebody there that picked all the songs for trailers or score pieces from other films. And that was of interest to me. I didn't study music, but I played music just casually and was a rabid fan. And so long story short, I ended up, the, the sort of mailroom gig at the time, at that point, in in like these any any sort of production place, was like driving around town. You know, before we were watching everything online, it was just like sending three quarter inch tapes over to Sony and back to the place. Mm. And then I soon was able to assist this guy who was a music supervisor. I didn't even know what that meant. Mm. And before long, I was able to have his job. And before long, I had people. I was running a department. And after many years of doing that, it was all like huge campaigns for big movies. And it was gnarly, it was like, you know, it was high stress, high volume. And then I I grew like terribly tired of it because it was just became a grind. Um, I took some time off and then like tiptoed back into music supervision. I was offered a TV show and I didn't realize that it was like, I had a crazy boot camp from working in the trailer business and working on TV and film actually was like a lot less demanding and a lot more creative. And so I had this skill set that like I really didn't even realize was like so valuable to me. But I had to enlist people and sort of learn myself about the horrific back end of this job, which is like I said a, a mountain of licensing and all that.
2: Yeah, yeah, perhaps before we move on, we should talk about the onerous process that is licensing and music clearances because you know you just hear all the time it's so so hard you know i i recently wrote a book and they were like whatever you do don't use a song lyric as the epigraph <laughs> it's gonna take, it, it'll take months to get just your epigraph cleared you're going to pay ten thousand bucks for it you know just don't even go anywhere near it uh and you have to go near that like every day is part of your job so why are music clearances so complicated and onerous why is it so difficult to do
1: that part of the job well i would say that for some people it's not i think it's like their Mm. sweet spot it's their love language they want nothing more than to email back and forth with a lawyer about percentages on (laughs) writer share um but i think for creative people like ourselves i mean this is actually a, a great question in terms of like the Bigger question around music supervision and who's fit for the job. Because even if you were just a music nerd or a DJ or a musician and you came to it from... Or you were a label exec and the music industry collapsed and you were looking for a job. There's so much more to it than any of us could have ever imagined. Mm -hmm. And if you are maybe not equally creative and sort of OCD or detail-oriented... The more you are at the at the ladder, the easier time you're going to have. Um, or if you're busy enough and you can enlist people to help you, that you can delegate, and so all of a sudden you're like running running a, a shop or like a business. Which again, the creatives in us aren't aren't used to that, or we weren't at one point. Right. Mm-hmm. So um, is
2: it your love language, Lauren? Because you started doing it as a intern. No, I was trying to <laughs> run
3: away run away from it as quickly as possible. But I was. I mean, I do enjoy like the sleuthing aspect of when you find like. A rare recording that you you know and you love, and then you you can like if nobody knows where where it lives, and you're the one that figures out that oh actually it belongs to you Sony ATV because I found this like crazy um, old forty five on like this random website or eBay, and it connects it to this company, and that part's like kind of exciting, but. I think it's definitely like a great knowledge and skill to have and it helps you do the job better overall because you know how to communicate this to producers and to studios and everything. And it's such a necessary part of being a good creative because you inherently understand what you can and, you know, pitch or not sort of. Um, Right. But at the end of the day, my dream would be to like, yeah, enlist people to do that for us. And, um, I just listen to songs and drink martinis, you know? <laughs> yeah. I was wondering about that, about
2: what that process is like day to day. I mean, even if you're not working on a specific film of like, you know, but your research process in general must be listening to as much music as you can. And then catalog, I mean, do you catalog it in Spotify playlist? You know, how do you, what are your listening habits like as a result of your job?
1: It's constant. I mean, mm. we're inundated with stuff from reliable sources and and mysterious ones and then we sort of spend equal time following rabbit holes you know now obviously almost entirely online but it used to be like i would go to amoeba i would get as many cds as i could afford i would listen to every one of them i would put masking tape on the back i'd buy scores i would like find pieces of score that i thought were interesting and from the trailer business you know it was mostly licensing pre-existing scores so i would listen to every second of a score that came out no matter what Mm. and so i think because we're not necessarily licensing pre-existing score music anymore in our current um roles it's listening to a ton of new music but for me like the quote-unquote problem with listening to new music exclusively is I think everyone else is doing that too. I mean, it's endless, but like other supervisors are probably looking for amazing new songs to place. And so we spend a lot of time digging through dusty old old mm-hmm. bins, you know, virtual bins or real ones. Yeah. Um, but there's so much content. And so right. I used to feel like there was a perfect song for every scene. And I would worry that like if I didn't find it, somebody else would or that i just like hadn't sort of completed the task to perfection and so i had to kind of relax and just know that like okay you you only know what you know Mm -hmm. all the music that's in your brain or your hard drive or your spotify playlist like that's what you have access to and if you haven't heard it yet buddy it's okay you know like (laughs) you may or may not be right about that um but i don't know that sounds kind of insane it's just like It's just a bit of a perfectionistic aspect Mm -hmm. of what I do.
2: I mean, I think every artist and every creative profession struggles with whatever form of perfectionism Mm -hmm. they have to do. I mean, that happens to be yours. Do you know what I mean? But it's like, Mm -hmm, oh, do I get this sentence perfect? Or you know, sometimes you just have to be like, well, every sentence can't be a glittering, beautiful gem. Yeah, yeah. You know, you get overwhelmed if that's
1: if that's the case. Yeah.
2: When's the
3: painting finished? But I think us working together. Can give us a. I don't know. i in my experience, like it gives you the little bit more security that when we decide whatever we're sending to creatives, you know, like we feel duly confident about the choices. You know, totally. And that's I the mean, that, beautiful that's the beautiful part of the team, yeah.
1: That that's the beauty of collaborating is that we'll edit each other's stuff constantly. Like Lauren will send me a a selection of ideas for a particular spot, a scene or a sequence or whatever, and I'll and vice versa, and we'll just be like, yes, no, yes, no, yes, no. I mean, we have a lot of the same instincts, but of course we'll come up with stuff that the other person hadn't imagined. And so like that combo of that is, it's really strong for us. It, it makes the job easier because, like Lauren said, it's like you're more confident that someone sort of checked your work before an editor or producer or director has a chance to, to weigh in. But I feel like by the time we've gone back and forth on something, when we're sending stuff over we're pretty confident that there's something even sometimes we'll send like very few things sometimes we'll be asked for more but we both are like yeah this is the one probably like it'll Mm. just be like the top of the list
2: so how did this partnership start when did you all start working together
3: I moved from Texas or Austin where I started working to LA in 2014 because I wanted to remain freelance and develop it into like a bigger more real career and mutual friends introduced us so I could, you know, have like an in informational meeting with Bruce about like, how do I make it here? <laughs> how does this become a real job? And we just got along and, and, you know, I think you said, um, you know, if I have extra work, I'll throw it your way. And, and then that started to happen. And after I got worked on my own t- TV show, cause I was mostly doing indie film still at this mm-hmm. as of like five years ago. Um, I started, I, I got my own TV show in, 2017 or something like that and learn the ropes of that side uh, aside from just indie film. Cause Bruce mostly works in TV. And, um, then we kind of knew that we had like the ability to properly team up, um, and collaborate.
2: So maybe we could talk about a couple of your, your projects as a way of illustrating your, your process a bit, only murders in the building, uh, which y'all did the music supervision for, um, what were those sort of early conversations about the music like, you know, what do you want in those first conversations with a showrunner or director to kind of get you
1: going on your job? That show in particular is just like an absolute dream gig. Mm -hmm. They aren't always that dreamy. Yeah, Everyone Uh, I've
2: talked to who worked on that show had that response to it, that it was just like a joy to work on.
1: uh, If I'm not mistaken, John Hoffman, the showrunner co-created it with Steve Martin and, um, so John runs it, meaning I'm sure you know what a showrunner is. It's like you know, in this case, he's just uh, has the impossible task of overseeing absolutely everything. <laughs> um, and so, when it's time for him to check in with us, it's usually I don't know, music. It, uh, it depends on the show. It, in some cases, it seems like music's one of the last places because it's so far in the post process. If it wasn't something that was done on camera. Um, I think someone in his position or even someone who reports to him is usually like so beat down that they're just like, okay, like, oh, we're mixing this thing in two weeks. Like, where are we, you guys? Uh, do we, ha- you know, are we cleared? Like, it's just like the, the minutiae of the, the stress around delivering episodes of TV. And this is just like the opposite. It's just like, yes, and, you know, like <laughs> what? Oh, so, to answer your question more specifically, like when we first met on the show, like, you know, you someone hits you up about a project you meet, You may or may not get the job, but upon our very first meeting, it was just like a party. Like we were Mm. on a Zoom with like I don't know how many people. It was Jamie Babbitt who directed the pilot. I think had brought us on, or or, you know, had thrown our names in the ring. And we met with um, with Jamie and John and and a few others. And it was just like, what is it? You know, like what are we doing here? What could it be? Is it are there show tunes? Is it New York? Is it Broadway? Is it punk rock? Is it dirty? Is it Ace freely, like it was just like absolutely everything, and so we were able to craft that together conceptually. And then um, the composer uh, Sid has a huge hand in in the sound of that show. Um, some episodes are really song heavy, some aren't as much. Um, but I would just say, I mean, this show in particular, it's just like it's been it's such a delight, and it, I think it has almost everything to do with John and his approach to making tv
3: and like saying yes excitedly kind of vibes you know Mm
1: -hmm. like if we float an idea he's just like yeah let's try that let's do it you know and you know i've worked with other people that are it's sort of like the opposite impulse it's like show me more show me more show me more show me more prove it let's hear like their creative process is such that like until every idea and option is exhausted they can't trust that they've found the right Answer, Whereas like this sort of, I don't even know if John, I I would venture to guess that John comes from a theater background and or like a improv background because it's like the yes and of it all is like really palpable. It's just like everything's always rising. It's like, Mm -hmm. let's, yeah, I love it. I love it. Let's do it.
2: And the characters kind of are the three main characters anyway, kind of have their own musical vocabulary over mm-hmm. the course of those shows. Steve Martin, of course, there's a there's a lot of bluegrass in his character. Martin Short, there's there's a lot of theater music in his character. Selena Gomez's character. It's much more contemporary. Exactly. You know, was that something you were told at the beginning? This is what this is going to be? Or did it come out of those meetings? Or, you know, how did you figure out how to kind of root the cues in the various characters?
1: It wasn't really explicit from the start. I mean, in the pilot, we threw a Dua Lipa song. It may have actually been scripted over mm-hmm. the introdu- Selena's introduction. And then there's like a Broadway piece over over Martin's stuff. So I think some of it was sort of really obvious, in a not in like a way that's not interesting or exciting, but if we're not dealing with like a character-specific thing, I think it's it's always better to be a little counterintuitive about it. Um, And so some of the songs, at least in like recent episodes, speak more to the predicament or the mystery or the story at large.
0: We'll be back with more of Isaac's conversation with Bruce Gilbert and Lauren Micus. listeners we really want to hear from you whether it's to ask us for advice on a creative problem tell us a guest you'd like to hear on the show or share your own creative triumphs drop us a line at working at slate.com or give us a ring at 304-933-WORK and if you're enjoying this episode don't forget to subscribe to working wherever you get your podcasts Now let's return to Isaac's conversation with Bruce Gilbert and Lauren Micus.
2: You know, I have to ask, uh, obviously this job entails having a very broad taste in music and very deep knowledge of it. There's got to be some time when a director or showrunner or stuff has their heart set on a song you personally despise or that you feel (laughs) like would be a... Ethical crime to unleash on the public. Like, like, what? What does does that ever happen? What do you do in those moments? Where you're like, oh my god, he. I'm not going to name a song, but you know, he wants this song, and I just would rather tear out my hair than have to listen to. Of
1: course, yes, this
2: happens. We hope
3: it's too expensive. No, I'm just kidding. Yeah, yeah. yeah then
2: are you just like, oh,
1: the rights just
3: weren't weren't available.
2: Yeah. I'm so yeah, we, sorry.
1: We weren't able. Yeah, we just couldn't track that down. Um, well, the good news is this isn't even me being diplomatic, we've been lucky enough to work on shows where that isn't something that we've encountered many times. It Mm -hmm. has for sure happened. I would say it's like, in some cases, I've found it like, there was something scripted. And in TV, like the writer is so important that like a lot of times, in my experience, like a a producer will sort of honor something that's scripted for as long as makes sense um, until maybe we see it cut finally in the edit and it's like yeah we're not using that um or like first of all some writers will be like oh i just threw it in there and others are like oh i wrote all weekend to it um in which case it's like i well maybe it does belong in there Mm -hmm. i don't have like a proprietary interest in like making it my my choice or our choice Mm -hmm. Um, especially if it's good um in some cases if it's really weak it's probably been used before maybe too many times. So that's usually a pretty good deterrent. You can be like, oh, I actually saw this on – and then, you know, mm-hmm. insert show that will turn off writer here, you know.
3: Right. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's a great, that's a great
2: tip. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. It's like, uh, well, you wouldn't like it. It's more of a Shelby Town idea.
1: Right? <laughs> the, you know, the
2: thing from The Simpsons. Um, <laughs> You know, I, this is maybe a segue to talking about everything everywhere all at once, because one of the running gags in that film is actually has to do with this, that song, Absolutely Story of a Girl, by Nine Days. Uh, within the film's multiverse, the song pops up a bunch of times with different lyrics that are relevant to whichever multiverse scenario we happen to be in. Uh, to give a sense of what this is like, actually, let's uh, listen to the original song first.
3: This is the story of a girl who cried a river and drowned the whole world. And while she looks so sad in photographs, I absolutely love her when she smiles.
2: And here are some of the versions you hear in the movie.
3: This is the story of a chef.
2: A raccoon on the top of his head. This is the story of
3: a dumb. She tied me up so good, but it's wrong. This
2: Was that in there before you all signed on? Was that something they were they were doing to begin with, or was that an idea that arose out of meetings you had with the Daniels, or, or how did that come to be?
3: It wasn't originally written into the script, although they do reference lyrics in a scene where uh, Alpha Wayman is explaining to Evelyn you know, what the the feeling around the the darkness that they're all trying to escape right. by, you know, jumping around these, these multiverses. And that was sort of like a joke that had happened between the Daniels and uh, as they were writing and they kept it in there. And it came just kind of came about naturally in conversation from the Daniels about like how we could maybe utilize that song and make it funny. And um, they kind of picked those different moments. And then we were like, you know, well, let's see if this, let's see if this band is down for this kind of not expecting, you never know with these kind of scenarios where you want to change lyrics and like, you want to, you know, sort of make it like a tongue in cheek kind of experience. And, and luckily, you know, John Hampson, who wrote the song and he was just immediately down, just. A film fan, like so excited about it. Just like, so we had one phone call or we had like a one big Zoom with everybody and they were just kind of, we were all spitballing like funny lyric ideas about Mm. how we could change it for those specific universes. And um, so you
2: all wrote the kind of gag lyrics together. Yeah,
3: they did together. um, The Daniel kind of like almost they had some ideas and he had some just kind of like came up spontaneously on this on our, like kind of, I think the first meeting mm-hmm. and then he kind of got quickly got us just like little examples of, of, so it kind of was just one of those like beautiful kismet moments where everyone like kind of like what Bruce was saying about how we feel about on only murders, just that first meeting kind of like spitballing ideas and being on the same page and it's sort of feeling like a fun party. And then you kind of really know that you've got, something good you know from Mm -hmm. all the creatives being fusing together and it does
2: seem like that helps address one of what i imagine is a creative challenge as the music supervisor on that film which is like what does music in another universe sound like like in a universe where we all have Mm -hmm. hot dog hands what's playing on the radio or whatever is a that's a weird creative challenge that I, i i have to imagine was a new one
3: yeah it was i mean the daniels you know they're they had such an intricate Relationship with all of those universes, and obviously, like, had an idea about what they were doing. But we were trying to keep it, you know, interesting and find things that fit within each universe, but also fit into the film as a whole. And I Mm -hmm. think that was, and also, that's the most importantly, like, the score is a huge part of that film. And we definitely were trying to provide them with options for, you know, whatever they were thinking that wouldn't distract or overpower the score that's kind of like sometimes gently but sometimes excitedly like moving us along on this crazy ride through all these different experiences and universes you know
2: well with the score specifically you you all I mean you didn't write the score but you were involved in the the process with the score right and interfacing with the band and and all that
3: I mean we were around to help with some technical aspects and stuff but mostly that was like the Daniels and, and Sunlux just had like a great oh, shorthand um, and kind of, you know, I, we helped them out with they did a cover of a, a traditional like Chinese opera piece that we found and, you know, like kind of it helped them incorporate elements of other songs into their score and, and in that sort of way. But they they knew that they wanted to work together and just had such a great like rapport and work, you know, they worked so well and so diligently together. And did such a great job. So
2: But sometimes, you know, as you mentioned at the beginning of the program, sometimes you do have to work as the kind of translator, right? Between those two groups of people of like uh well what the director really means is that Oh yeah. It has oh, to be yeah. it has to be fiery and in a minor key. Yeah. Or, you know, whatever it is.
1: Yes, for sure. Are there plenty of shows where I'll get a call from a composer saying like, hey, uh what the fuck was he talking about um, <laughs> and other times like we won't even hear from a composer because they have mm-hmm. such a great shorthand either from you know prior experience with the director with the showrunner um or they're just a it's a great fit and it's seemingly effortless i mean the the composers are doing a ton of work obviously but the the conversation isn't labored you know it's it's not tricky or difficult or um or confusing but yeah sometimes we have to be a a translator or a uh a therapist a lot of times. Um, sometimes it's just like, yeah, talking somebody down. But, you know, like, it's like a creative... It's a creative helping a creative <laughs> versus, right. yeah. versus... And some producers are really well-suited as sort of like letting, letting people know, that like, it's going to be fine. You know, you're, we love what you're doing. It's, you know, I, you can tell when someone's really fucked because the producer will uh, lead with a giant compliment. <laughs> before they, like, dive into an we even We
3: love what you're doing, but... Cri- yeah.
1: Criticism.
3: Yeah. Right, and, the, and the
1: compliment's not specific at
2: all, <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. You
1: yeah, you're doing such great work. So... We're-
3: yeah, um, it looks like you're having fun out there, but <laughs> oh no, that's the worst. That's the—I mean, for you... my,
1: you know, there's
2: that Thirty Rock episode where there's the montage of Tina Fey's compliments about the about Jenna Maroney's plays getting less and less sincere, <laughs> and at the end, she's just like, "The program, the paper stock yeah, yeah. is so." That was definitely my experience as a theater director. Sometimes
3: there are times on on other shows and films where we are providing. Even maybe sometimes before there's a composer or helping the composer with like temping, you know, if there isn't quite an idea yet between the showrunner or director or composer, um, we will kind of pull a big wide net together to kind of hone in on what what is this world gonna sound like and what is the sound of the show. And I think, you know, with everything everywhere at once, those guys knew it and had it. And but in other a lot of our other jobs, like sometimes people don't know it yet or have Mm -hmm. it. And then that is when we do have a bigger creative hand and and giving them sonic, you know, templates to like at least be the first domino that inspires like, you know, the rest of it.
2: Yeah, I was about to ask, you know, how do you help your collaborators get unstuck? Is it just you come to them with like 32 flavors of of what the piece could be? And then they say, you know, mint chocolate chip is the one I want or, you know.
3: And we send them ice cream. Yeah, Yeah, I
1: mean, on some projects there's a, Huge temping sort of workload where we're basically oh, for, for a-
2: our listeners real quick. Temping is the the tracks uh, so that they put on an edit that have the feel of what it should be, but aren't the actual final music that the composer is going to do. Right? Yeah,
1: it, yeah. it has its own fascinating um, outcome sometimes, which we refer to as temp love, where we've heard something against picture for so long that when it comes time to either license it if it's a song or replace it with score, which is often the case. Uh, sometimes a producer or director has a really hard time parting with what they've heard there, even if it wasn't perfect, even if it was just a placeholder. Um, and so when, when we're temping something, we're, we're doing that you know, throughout many, many, sometimes all the scenes. Sometimes a composer isn't on board yet. Sometimes a composer doesn't have a lot of stuff in there catalog that sounds much like what we're going for. Um, and they're busy getting started on writing sketches and composing pieces that are ultimately going to, you know, be the connective tissue. And until then, we have to find stuff that, like, we think is maybe somewhere in the neighborhood of where where we're going to ultimately land. Um, so that's a big part of it on, on some shows.
2: One thing that's come up a few times over the course of our conversation is that the, the job Entails a surprising amount of emotional caretaking um, for a job that you know maybe that isn't what you thought it would be when you you first got in the biz and were clearing the rights for some adagio for Tree of Life or whatever, um, and and so I'm curious about learning to do that, learning the part of the job that has to do with putting people's minds at ease and being a generous collaborator and everything like that. Did did that come easy? Was that itself a learning process? Were you surprised at how much you have to do
3: it? A little bit surprising, but I kind of understood it as sort of how we all are so emotional and connected to and through music that I guess like it kind of inspires a little bit of like, oh, you have to be empathetic about this, you know, <laughs> because like you feel that way about songs and they feel that way about songs. But I guess you kind of think like if you're doing something like as a job that it won't translate into that world. But then at the end of the day, it kind of makes sense that it does, because as we are all creatives, helping creatives, as Bruce said, and like we all have such, you know, our own emotional subjective connection to the songs we want to hear or put in our projects or whatever. Yeah, I think I think it's something that you naturally kind of learn through the process as your career evolves and doing multiple jobs to like come to expect it and then sort of like have the dialogue around it um become a better therapist as time goes on, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> I I
1: think like we all spent I mean most of us who found our way to this job have spent so much time talking about music and what moves us that that part is easy. I don't. We don't ever have to make a case for anything because the music speaks for itself. And so, mm-hmm. a composer who's writing can write from their, you know, their true self. And if we're finding music, I mean, a different task, which is like, you know, it's obviously terribly subjective. But once we're all sort of on the same page, we're just making suggestions and exploring possibilities and i know even though we're not writing music i think i'm doing my best work when i'm not trying too hard frankly and so if i read a script and go to sleep i can wake up with the for my like again it's back to like the perfectionistic aspect of it but i'll wake up with the answer you know Mm -hmm. for me and if it's a great collaboration then someone will either push you to figure out something else if it's not what they're feeling or in in many cases, they'll totally be keyed into the same impulse. Mm -hmm. And so I think addressing that with a composer, just being like, if you're trying so hard at something, it might not be the right move, you know? It might be something that you can sort of like take your foot off the gas a little bit and slow down and feel your way through it. Um, I know for us, if it's like, if we're working on a project where someone's like asking for more and more and more and more and more, A, we're getting burnt out. B, we're not really like, pursuing our true creative impulses we're kind of pursuing someone else's attempt at one or what they think it might be or someone Mm -hmm. has something in their head but they're not hearing it but we're not writing it so I think when it's like effortless and by effortless I mean like something that comes easily because you've put in your 10,000 plus hours or whatever um, not because you're not trying hard I think those are some of like the sweetest moments Um, so I think enlisting someone to do the same or sort of reminding them that like that it doesn't need to be too terribly difficult I think probably gets you there a little faster.
2: Well, Bruce, Lauren, thank you so much for joining us here this week on Working and Sharing Your Process with us.
1: Thanks for all the great
2: questions.
3: Thank you. Yeah, this was really fun.
0: Isaac, that was so great. Thank you. One thing that really struck me at the beginning of your conversation, when you were asking them how they both got into the music supervision business, was when they said that they were both music heads. Which, you know, obviously is something that's necessary for that job. Because basically, it's all about constantly coming up with the note just, as you might say. (laughs) I recognize the desire to work in a field that you're passionate about, but as someone who has a tendency to go all in on something that I'm into, become fully obsessed with it, and then pretty often just kind of let it go, it feels like a lot of pressure to put on something you love. Do you Share my hesitation about having a passion become your nine to five.
2: Well, that's an interesting question. I mean, first of all, you're absolutely right. They come at it from different directions. You know, uh, Lauren, for example, is a musician and has a band called Gal Pals. And, you know, Bruce came to it from the advertising side and, and stuff like that. But the thing they share is this kind of obsession with with music and with figuring out, you know, how it fits into storytelling. But is, you know, taking that passion and turning it into their nine to five really that different from what you and I have done with our lives, June? I mean, just because Mm. we're not going to an office or drawing a weekly salary, uh, that doesn't mean we haven't turned our passions, you know, writing, the creative process, the history of lesbian activism, American culture, (laughs) what have you. You know, we've turned those things into our jobs. I actually think that's one of the really hard parts about writing a book is, you know, that book's your job and sometimes you hate your job and (laughs) you're your own boss. And sometimes you hate your boss. Just because you're your own boss and it's a passion project doesn't mean you won't have bad days. And I think like making your peace with that is actually one of the really important parts of doing creative work.
0: Yeah, totally. And yeah, it's a great point. And it's also the main reason that you should never, ever, ever commit to writing a book on a topic that you're kind of meh with because you're gonna spend a lot of time with it, you're gonna have hard days and the more you really do love the thing that you're writing about and you just want to learn more and more and more, the less depressing it's going to yeah. be, I
1: think. You
2: know, in the 60s, they could just blow through all that with amphetamines. You know, you could just call the right <laughs> doctor, get prescribed some amphetamines and just just go to work. You know, you could get that book finished in six months, but you can't do that yeah. now.
0: Yeah, we have no Dr. Feelgoods. It was interesting to hear Bruce and Lawrence thinking around new artists. Basically... Everyone who does their job is listening to everyone. So trying to find the next new sound is really stressful because it's what, you know, everyone's doing and how can they find the right music. Mm -hmm. At the same time, though, we are living in a moment where almost every piece of music is pretty much almost instantly accessible. Oh, I'm feeling stressed just even thinking about those endless possibilities. Um, I know that I crave some constraints to spark creativity. Do you have any tips for creating restrictions when none are provided externally kind of by the gig?
2: Oh, yeah. Well, you know... Uh, well first of all I think every gig's gonna apply some constraints right I mean, yeah, there is yeah, none where yeah. it's like the music could be anything I mean that's never <laughs> going to happen so but Phew. but you know it's a good point and I think in, in almost every creative discipline you're actually gonna hit these moments where you don't have enough constraints and it's actually much more difficult as a result yeah. I yeah. think in those moments when it feels like the possibilities are so limitless you can't do anything uh, what you have to do is just come up with some arbitrary restraints just to see what happens I wouldn't impose them permanently, but for like a day or two of work or even an hour or two of work or or whatever, you know, they can be really helpful. And arbitrary restraints, they could be super involved. Uh, Today, uh, I'm not going to use the letter E when I write. So every word I choose has to not have the letter E in it. Or it could be much looser. I'm going to write without stopping for 20 minutes, no matter what. Um, One of my favorite things to do, this is a a concrete tip, is to look Mm. up an oblique strategy. June, have you ever used (laughs) the oblique strategies? Never. So these are these creativity prompts developed by uh, the brilliant composer, musician, producer Brian Eno and the artist Peter Schmidt. And as you might imagine, they're they're not literal. You know, uh, you can go, <laughs> they they were originally a stack of cards, and you would just pick a card at random, and it would have this one sentence or even sometimes one word thing to tell you what to do with your creative project, and you would go do it. Now you don't have to do that. You can go online. You can Google Oblique Strategy Generator, and it will spit one out for you. For example, I just did it and it said, mm-hmm. be less critical more often. And then you try to figure out a way to apply that to the work you're doing for a set amount of time.
0: Well, okay. Let me do it. Um, Remove ambiguities and convert to specifics. Wow. Right? Okay. Yeah. I mean, I am often much too in love with ambiguity. <laughs> so yeah, I, I can get behind that. Also, Arbitrary Restraints is definitely going to be my, my next band name. Oh, yeah. Um, I loved your question about what they do when the showrunner or director is absolutely committed to a song that they hate. As you said, there are sensible arguments you can make. But when a writer has really connected with a song and kind of written to it, you have to at least make an effort to see if it's going to be possible to use it. hmm. Because of the behind the scenes podcast I made about the show, I spent a lot of time talking to the Jays, Joe Weisberg and Joel Fields, the showrunners of the Americans. And I know that pieces of music from the period where the show was set were hugely important to them when they were writing. They were so excited when the kind of in-show calendar allowed them to use a song that had come out by then, so like they were super excited when it was time to use Brothers in Arms by Dire Straits.
2: I remember that episode.
0: Yeah, but at the same time, they were adamant that they'd never use like Sting's Russians, because that was just too on the nose. Is there a show that you think has found the kind of happy balance between obvious and obscure?
2: I think the rule of thumb is default to obscure, actually. Mm -hmm. Uh, And Mm -hmm. I am really not a fan of the recent trend towards big needle drops so that everyone yeah. on Twitter will talk about the song you used in your episode. You know, when yeah. you re- when I read about that happening, and everyone's like, oh, can you believe they used this song? All I hear is, oh, can you believe the show had the budget to use this mm-hmm, song? Like, it mm-hmm. doesn't it just sounds like money change yeah. raining down yeah. onto the table. It does not sound like the the song itself. And I think that if you do something that's too well known, you can get in a lot of trouble. To, to take the Americans as an example, I loved the change chase scene where they use Tusk I thought that was such a fascinating choice to use this kind of disreputable song from Fleetwood Mac's uh, catalog and make it really work for that chase scene but I I could spend the rest of our, our discussion today talking about how much I hated the use of with or without you in the finale I mean, that's a song you hear in grocery stores. <laughs> it's marrow has been drained, you know? And yeah, so it yeah. just so took me out of that moment that I actually, you know, there's no, I had felt almost no emotional connection towards that moment in the show because of the, really because of the use of that song. Wow. Um I think one thing that's happened, of course, is that you know TV has really gotten eaten up by these conglomerates that have their mm-hmm. own music libraries. Yes, and so it yes. has become easier to access those really expensive songs. Um, and so there is a recent trend towards that. But I, I really love when I discover a kind of music through the milieu of a show or songs that i hadn't heard of or you know you look up the spotify playlist of every song played in insecure for example insecure yes. had constant music and every choice was so brilliant um yeah. there's a show called lodge 49 that only lasted for two seasons on amc that uh, friend of the program laura miller and i are yes, huge so huge fans that. of and yeah. the music from lodge 49 is amazing it's its own Groove—it's its own kind of osmutante stereo lab, uh, uh. you know, skronky surf rock, you know, drugged-out groove, kind of psych surf music, and I just <laughs> loved it. Wow!
0: So one thing that I now want to write on a post-it note and like put on the wall in front of me was Bruce's observation that quote, most of us who found our way to this job have spent so much time talking about music that we're comfortable with that part of the job. You know, he referenced the kind of 10,000 hours idea. This isn't something that you're necessarily great at on your first day in a job but at the same time, it's kind of hard to be confident when you set out that you will develop those very necessary skills by, like, day 1200. You know, talking about things like ineffable qualities, like, you know, the emotions that a piece of music evokes, that's really hard. I am guessing that because you spent a lot of time as a director of theatre, and that is a job that is insanely communication-dependent, that you have some ideas about this. Are there things that people can do to get better at talking about ideas and movement and gestures and things that really aren't always easy to express.
2: I think there definitely are. Although I should preface this by saying that as a director, I almost always chose all the music for my shows. I Uh -uh. took very little input in it. I had very clear ideas. One of the places I started in thinking when I would read a script is what music comes to mind when I'm reading it. That's Hmm. when I knew that it had touched me in such a way that I would have something to say about it and want to direct it. You know, the biggest thing you can do, I think, when you're talking about abstract stuff is make it concrete as quickly as possible. Brian Eno was right. Yeah, <laughs> you, you have to uh, you have to just use concrete examples, you know. Mm-hmm. Um it's so easy for things to exist purely in the realm of ideas. And talking about ideas, being in the conceptual plane, that's yeah. really important. But you know, June, you and I might agree on an idea. And completely disagree on what that idea looks or sounds like or feels like right. in the real right. world. You right. know, so we might be like, Oh, I want this song to be really peppy, and I'm thinking, I don't know, Elvis Costello's watching the detectives and that that drum hit at the intro, mm-hmm. right? And you're thinking um, Tusk. uh, uh, You're thinking Tusk, or you're thinking, you know, Abba's take a chance on me or something, (laughs) you know. (laughs) Those are two completely different versions of Peppy. So, you know, the earlier you can start talking about comps and real world examples, the better. You know, I did this show, Real Enemies, um, which was about. Conspiracy theories in American public life. And so in talking to the wonderful light and set designer Maruti Evans for that show, we um, very quickly were like, well, obviously the visual milieu is going to pull from 70s paranoid cinema because that's the Mm. visual grammar of paranoia that still affects us today. But Mm. even within that is, does it look like the conversation, which is has a lot of browns and is very foggy and is San Francisco and has the kind of grain in the cinematography because it's a lot of long lens cinematography? Or is it the parallax view, which is lots of shadow and sort of using only parts of the image and red, white and blue colors come up a lot? You know, the, so those kinds of questions, again, the more you're just getting towards real world examples, the better.
0: Wow. You know, this show always like gives me homework in the best possible way. And now all I want to do is watch those movies. So thank you, Isaac.
2: If you have the Criterion channel, I think Parallax View is coming to it very soon. Good to know.
0: All right, listeners, we hope you've enjoyed this week's show. If you have, remember to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. That way you'll never miss an episode. And just a reminder that by joining Slate Plus... You'll get ad-free podcasts, extra episodes of shows like Slow Burn and Big Mood, Little Mood, and you'll never hit a paywall on the Slate site. To learn more, go to slate.com slash workingplus.
2: Thank you to our guests, Bruce Gilbert and Lauren Micus, and to our fabulous producer, Cameron Drews, who is the bass line to our guitar line. We'll be back next week with June's conversation with pioneering feminist publisher and mystery writer, Barbara Wilson. Until then, get back to work. Hey Slate Plus listeners, Isaac Butler here. Thank you so much for supporting everything we do right here on Working. Uh, We got a little bit extra from this week's episode for you to listen to and hope you enjoy it. Thanks again. It's interesting that you mentioned checking the end credits of the film for the for the song to, you know, learn about new music. You know, I feel like maybe it's because I was like a nineties kid, but I remember doing the same mm-hmm. thing. Or, you know, I when I was in high school, it was really the era of music from and inspired by mm-hmm. the motion picture. And you know, you get that album because I don't right. know, it had some obscure morphine B side on it. And then you exactly. discover another band through that or whatever. Um, do you think about that in your job? Like that there's a taste making part of it that that maybe there's like a part of you that's like hoping some similar high school student is is getting turned on to new things through through what you're doing
3: oh I definitely do I mean I think when I have an opportunity to even include you know my like musician friends that I care about and um or not even friends just like sneak it in there, imagining there is some kid that's watching and looking for stuff especially if you didn't have a you know a a musical family that was going beyond like the Red Hot Chili Peppers, no no offense to them or anything, but, you know, I was thirsty, and I feel like if you're thirsty for stuff, I mean, now, you know, there's Spotify and all that, but I still think, you know, like how you were saying, like how movies sort of, like, you, you emotionally connect to them and those songs can kind of, like, mean more. I think they settle in, and, and I think people do still discover bands from film, and I feel like that's a cool part of thinking about paying it back or forward or whatever, you know? <laughs>
1: I mean, I, my, Lauren was saying earlier, like the harder we have to look to identify like the rights holders on something, I do feel like we're on the right track in terms of potentially happening upon something that someone hasn't done already. You know, if it's right. not obvious, it's, it's more likely that it's or it's, it's less likely that it's been used before. So I think it's less about like, oh, we're, we're tastemakers and more about like doing original work. Mm-hmm. And and mm-hmm. finding opportunities to place music that someone hasn't necessarily seen against picture before. I mean, the right. sad thing for us as music fans, or I'll speak for myself, is like I listen to music almost exclusively now with picture in mind. So like, unless I'm putting on like a Love Supreme with my kid and just like making him listen to the side A and side B until it's spun itself out, I'm almost always filtering through some any number of projects that we're working on. I could be like, this song is amazing. Where does it live? You know? Mm -hmm.
2: Okay. So I want to return for a moment to our conversation about only murders in the building. You said that you were trying to create a uniquely New York sound for the movie, but, that could mean all sorts of things, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, that could mean Brill Building. It could mean Neil Sedaka. It could mean Talking Heads. It could mean <laughs> yes, New yeah. York Dolls. It could mean the Ramones. It could mean that's exactly right. You know, right. Billy Joel. It could mean ragtime. You know, it's a the city has, has had
0: <laughs>
2: has been so central to music for so long. So, how did you go about figuring out what this New York, this particular you know, uptown old co op building, New
1: York sound meant? We went down every road. I mean we we've we, it's funny, like I, I think you've you may have rattled off two artists that we've used this season. Yeah. <laughs> it's Neil Sadaka, right? There's just Neil Sedaka <laughs> all, all over the place yeah. this yeah, all right. <laughs> There's a Neil Sadaka episode. Um it's it's sort of less specific to the building, um, or even to like that part of town than it is just like New York in general. Mm-hmm. And, New York has a
3: character kind of.
1: Yeah. I think yeah. initially that was the conversation. It's like, where, yeah. did, where does New York live here sonically? Mm-hmm. And the answer is, it's, it really is all over the place. Like we, we don't- Just
3: like New York. <laughs> yeah.
1: We're not having to find just the sweet spot where the intersection of these three characters. So we're able to toggle between like, you know, a big Broadway piece or or something a lot less grittier. I think that that's like the beauty of it is like, if, yeah. you, could, if you can hear like something like that and then- drop into a ramones tune then like know, that's a mm-hmm. show i want to watch right um, <laughs> you know if more than one person can say like i love that song i love that song it's like it's just a lot of fun for us
2: all right that's all for this week's episode thank you once again for everything you do to support us and we'll catch you next time right here on working